I was kind of broke. The girl on the train was the last roll of the dice for me as a fiction writer. Paula Hawkins. Hello and welcome to the Turnrate Podcast. This is episode 38. On today's episode, we are going to talk about analyzing first chapters and what makes them great. This is a continuation of my series. I did an episode last fall on The Hunger Games. Now today, we're going to look at one of my favorite books, a thriller, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. And I'm going to break down this chapter on what makes it really strong and why I as a reader am drawn to it and instantly hooked. Hopefully, by listening to this analysis, you can emulate some of these things in your own work. I'm not going to read the whole first chapter word for word, but I will start out reading it word for word just so you guys can get a feel of the story if you've never read it before. So the story is told from two different perspectives, Rachel and Megan, and we're starting with Rachel's perspective. There's a pile of clothing on the side of the train tracks. Light blue cloth, a shirt perhaps, jumbled up with something dirty white. Now, this is a very simple sentence. The author is just talking about this pile of clothing. And there's nothing really too exciting about it. But I'm already like instantly immersed in the story. I like that the first two lines are very mysterious. I like that they're simple, concrete. I know the pacing of the story is going to be quick. It's probably rubbish. A part of a load dumped into the scrubby little wood up the bank. It could have been left behind by the engineers who work this part of the track. They're here often enough. Or it could be something else. My mother used to tell me I had an overactive imagination. Tom said that too. I can't help it. I catch sight of these things. Discarded scraps, a dirty little t-shirt, or a lonesome shoe, and all I can think of is the other shoe and the feet that fitted into them. We have some character revealed here. The protagonist has an overactive imagination. Her mother told her this. So did Tom. We don't know who Tom is. And the character seems very unapologetic for this, which is something else I like. The train jolts and scrapes and screeches back into motion. The little pile of clothes disappears from view, and we trundle on towards London, moving at a brisk jogger's pace. Someone in the seat behind me gives a sigh of helpless irritation. The 804 slow train from Ashbury to Euston can test the patience of the most seasoned commuter. The journey is supposed to take 54 minutes, but it rarely does. This section of the track is ancient, decrepit, beset with signaling problems and never-ending engineering works. So we also get the idea that the character is probably not wealthy. She's going into London, and there's just a really nice feel for the story. I can really picture this woman on the train, the fact that she's going into work and just kind of having a normal day. And I think the reason why I keep reading is because there is this mystery of whose clothes are these down by the tracks? The train crawls along, it judders past warehouses and water towers, bridges and sheds, past modest Victorian houses, their backs turned squarely to the track. My head leaning against the carriage window, I watch those houses roll past me like a tracking shot in a film. I see them as others do not. Even their owners probably don't see them from this perspective. Twice a day, I am offered a view into others' lives, just for a moment. There's something comforting about the sight of strangers safe at home. That line kind of makes me wonder. 
oh, I know this story is a thriller. Is the protagonist the bad guy? Phone is ringing in incongruously joyful and upbeat song. They're slow to answer. It jingles on and on around me. I can feel my fellow commuters shift in their seats, rustle their newspapers, tap at their computers. The train lurches and sways around the bend, slowing as it approaches a red signal. I try not to look up. I try to read the free newspaper I was handed on my way into the station. But the words blur in front of my eyes. Nothing holds my interest. In my head, I can still see that little pile of clothes lying at the edge of the track, abandoned. So at this point, we have a lot of questions. You know, what does the character do for a living? Why is she going into London? Whose clothes are these? How did they get there? Is the main character a bad guy? What's her name? And all of this mystery and intrigue really makes us keep reading. And as you noticed, the author didn't pull out any fireworks or banging guns. She just has an excellent command of the language, excellent sentence structure, very simplistic, easy to read. She throws in a metaphor every so often. And we just really get this feeling that we're with this girl on this train. Evening. The premixed gin and tonic fizzes up over the lip of the can as I bring it to my mouth and sip. Tangy and cold, the taste of my first ever holiday with Tom, a fishing village on the Basque coast in 2005. In the mornings, we'd swim the half mile to the little island in the bay, make love on secret hidden beaches, and in the afternoons, we'd sit at a bar drinking strong bitter gin and tonics, watching swarms of beach football players playing chaotic 25-a-side games on the low-tide sands. I can instantly picture this. I love how colorful this image is of her and Tom on this holiday drinking this gin and tonic. And it's just beautiful and wistful. And we kind of get the feeling that maybe there's something off about her relationship with Tom. I take another sip and another. The can's already half empty, but it's okay. I have three more in the plastic bag at my feet. It's Friday. So I don't have to feel guilty about drinking on the train. TGIF, the fun starts here. There we go. That's the banger. That's the hook, in my opinion. She's drinking on the train on a Friday. Obviously, people don't drink on the train to and from work. The fact that she has three more in the plastic bag at her feet kind of signals that she might have a drinking problem. And I think this is really where the intrigue and the empathy start for this character. She's clearly less than perfect. She has to drink on the way home from her job, and this combined with the pile of clothes really makes me interested in the story. It's definitely not a story I've seen before. It's going to be a lovely weekend. That's what they're telling us. Beautiful sunshine, cloudless skies. In the old days, we might have driven to Corley Wood with a picnic in the paper, spent all afternoon lying on a blanket in drabbled sunlight drinking wine. We might have barbecued out back with friends or gone to the rose and sat in the beer garden, faces flushing with sun and alcohol, as the afternoon went on, weaving home arm in arm, falling asleep on the sofa. Beautiful sunshine, cloudless skies, no one to play with, nothing to do. Living like this, the way I'm living at the moment, is harder in the summer. When there is so much daylight, so little cover of darkness, when everyone is out and about, being flagrantly aggressive, happy, it's exhausting and it makes you feel bad if you're not joining in. The weekend stretches out ahead of me, 48 empty hours to fill. I lift the can to my mouth again, but there's not a drop left. This is a really sad paragraph. The protagonist is recalling how it used to be with her and Tom 
all of the fun things they did together that all seemed to involve alcohol. They had friends, they went out, they had this great social life. But now it's summer and the main character's alone. She's got nothing to do but drink and there's nothing left in her can. It's a very, very helpless and vivid image once again. And we all, to some extent, feel like we don't get invited to places or we don't have a lot going on in our lives. And I think really this is a universal feeling that's being conveyed here. It's a relief to be back on the 804. It's not that I can't wait to get into London to start my week. I don't particularly want to be in London at all. I just want to lean back in the soft, sagging velour seat, feel the warmth of the sunshine streaming through the window, feel the carriage rock back and forth, the comforting rhythm of wheels on tracks. I'd rather be here looking out at the houses beside the track than almost anywhere else. The character is so not happy with her life that she would rather look into other people's lives and sort of live vicariously through other people. I just love the way the author describes things, the sagging velour seat, everything is very vivid. Now the author continues on and describes this one specific house. Number 15 is much like the other houses along the stretch of tracks, a Victorian semi two stories high, overlooking a narrow well-tended garden. The author says, I knew this house by heart. I knew every brick. I knew the color of the curtains in the upstairs bedroom, beige with a dark blue print. I knew that the paint is peeling off the bathroom window frame and that there are four towels missing from a section of the roof over on the right hand side. So we wonder, how does the protagonist know all of this? Has she been in this house before? Then the author continues on to describe this couple that lives in this house, Jason and Jess. They are a perfect golden couple. He is dark-haired and well-built, strong, protective kind. He has a great laugh. She's one of those tiny bird women, a beauty, pale-skinned with blonde hair, cropped short. She has the bone structure to carry that kind of thing off. Sharp cheekbones dappled with a sprinkling of freckles, a fine jaw. She notes that Jason is away a lot at work. And then she muses where they are this morning. And then adds, as an aside, Tom and I used to run together on Sundays. Me going at slightly above my normal pace, him at about half his, just so we could run side by side. And I think this kind of confirms that she is indeed no longer with Tom. And it seems like Tom was a great guy if he slowed down to run with her. Turning slightly towards the window, my back to the rest of the carriage, I open one of the little one of the little bottles of Chenin Blanc I purchased from the whistle stop at Euston. It's not cold, but it'll do. I pour some into a plastic cup, screw the top back on, and slip the bottle into my handbag. It's less acceptable to drink on the train on a Monday unless you're drinking with company, which I am not. So I suppose before, I will say that in the United States, it is not legal to drink on trains, on the subway, on the metro, and so on. I guess apparently maybe it is legal in London, so that's kind of an interesting aspect. But still, it seems, you know, the author is saying it's less acceptable for the protagonist to be drinking on a Monday. There are familiar faces on these trains, people I see every week, going to and fro. I recognize them and they probably recognize me. I don't know whether they see me though, for what I really am. Definitely adds to the mystery of this character. Who is she? We don't even know her name yet. There is more musings about Jess and Jason. And another sad line that reveals the character, sometimes I catch myself trying to remember the last time I had meaningful physical contact with another person. 
Just a hug or a heartfelt squeeze of my hand and my heart twitches. That is really sad. The protagonist is really interesting, sort of slowly unraveling this mystery of the clothes beside the train, slowly unraveling the mystery of the protagonist herself. Why does she have all this sadness? What happened with Tom? We can all relate to her, this relationship ending, kind of feeling like you haven't been seen or heard or touched anyone in a while. It's kind of a familiar feeling after a breakup. And I think we just want to know more about the protagonist because she's tugged at our heartstrings. The pal of clothes from last week is still there and it looks dustier and more forlorn than it did a few days ago. I read somewhere that a train can rip the clothes right off you when it hits. It's not that unusual death by train, two to three hundred a year, they say, so at least one every couple of days. I'm not sure how many of these are accidental. I look carefully as the train rolls slowly past for blood on the clothes, but I can't see any. It's also kind of interesting that we're several pages into the first chapter, and there's really been no dialogue. This has all been in the protagonist's head. And some agents and advice blogs online or podcasts or whatever will tell you that you always need dialogue, you know, you need to actually have the protagonist be interacting with other characters, but this is all very much observation and in the main character's head, and I like that because it's allowing me to really know the main character before we delve deeper into the story. After she describes Jess and Jason a little more, we learn something crucial about the protagonist. I particularly don't want to see the one four doors down. That one used to be mine. I lived at number 23 Blindham Road for five years, blissfully happy and utterly wretched. I can't look at it now. That was my first home, not my parents' place, not a flat chair with their other students. My first home. I can't bear to look at it. Well, I can. I do. I want to. I don't want to. I try not to. Every day I tell myself not to look, and every day I look. I can't help myself. Even though there is nothing I want to see there, even though anything I do see will hurt me. Even though I remember so clearly how it felt that time, I looked up and noticed that the cream linen blind in the upstairs bedroom was gone, replaced by something in soft baby pink. Even though I still remember the pain I felt when I saw Anna watering the rose bushes near the fence, her t-shirt stretched tight over her bulging belly and I bit my lip so hard it bled. Now, if you've read this book before, you would know that some of the protagonist's troubles stem stems from her struggle with fertility. So seeing Anna, who is Tom's new wife, with this bulging belly, that is a clue that the author is giving us right here. One of my English teachers in high school used to say, an author never gives you a piece of information without it being useful somehow, without it indicating something deeper. So when you're trying to write a first chapter, it's a good idea to kind of allude to some other characters or the wound of the protagonist early on, but you don't want to like dive right into it. You don't want to spend a bunch of paragraphs telling the reader about it because that would just bore and confuse the reader. Just a sentence here and there, make it sharp, make it concise, and later on the reader will understand what it means, but you have to have this intrigue that keeps moving the story forward, such as, you know, we want to learn more about the protagonist's relationship with Tom, why she's drinking on the train, the pile of clothes, etc. I closed my eyes tightly and counted, and counted 10, 15, 20. 
There it's gone now, nothing to see. There's a filthy low-slung concrete building on the right-hand side of the track, about 500 meters before we get to Euston. On its side, someone has painted, Life is not a paragraph. I think about the bundle of clothes on the side of the track, and I feel as though my throat is closing up. Life is not a paragraph, and death is no parentheses. Very good sentence. The train I take in the evening, the 556, is slightly slower than the morning one. It takes one hour and one minute, a full seven minutes, a full seven minutes longer than the morning train. Despite not stopping at any extra stations, I don't mind because just as I'm in no great hurry to get into London in the morning, I'm in no hurry to get back to Ashbury in the evening either. In Ashbury, I'm not a homeowner, not even a tenant. I'm a lodger occupant of this small second bedroom in Kathy's bland and inoffensive duplex, subject to her grace and favor. Also interesting, how did the protagonist end up living from this beautiful house where Anna now lives to being taken in? What happened? The protagonist continues to describe her relationship with Kathy. They were friends at university. I'd never lived by myself. I'd gone from parents to flatmates to Tom. I found the idea overwhelming, so I said yes, and that was nearly two years ago. It's been two years without Tom, presumably two years in this depressed, anxious state. She describes Kathy's character. It's not awful. Kathy's a nice person in a forceful sort of way. Doesn't sound all that nice to me. And she reveals another startling line. I have lost control over everything, even the places in my head. She muses that she thinks Jason is a doctor because he's working a lot. My shirt uncomfortably tight, buttons straining across my chest is pit-stained, damp patches clammy beneath my arms. My eyes and throat itch. This evening, I don't want the journey to stretch out. I long to get home, to undress and get into the shower, to be, no, to be where no one can look at me. The author is saying the protagonist has gained some weight. She can barely fit into her clothes. She doesn't want to be looked at for all of these various reasons. We finally learn the protagonist's name. Kathy is talking to Damien, her boyfriend, and the protagonist overhears, for Rachel, not being funny, Kath, but I'm not sure I know anyone that desperate. Ouch. After they had both gone to bed, I remembered that I hadn't drunk the second bottle, so I opened that. I sat on the sofa and watched television with the sound turned down really low so they wouldn't hear it. I can't remember what I was watching, but at some point I must have felt lonely or happy or something because I wanted to talk to someone. The need for contact must have been overwhelming, and there was no one I could call except for Tom. There's no one I wanted to talk to except for Tom. The call log on my phone says I rang four times at 11.02, 11.12, 11.54, 12.09. Judging from the length of calls, I left two messages. He may have even picked up, but I don't remember talking to him. I remember leaving the first message. I think I just asked him to call me. That may be what I said in both of them, which isn't too bad. So she's drunk calling her ex, Tom. Poor thing. Says, please, Tom, please. I need to talk to you. I miss you. Not good. I once read a book by a former alcoholic where she described giving oral sex to two different men. Men she just met in a restaurant on a busy London high street. I read it and thought, I'm not that bad. This is where the bar is set. At this point in the novel, I am so curious about this character and what made her an alcoholic. I know Paula Hawkins is going to tell me. I know that because Paula Hawkins takes the time to describe this woman not even being able to fit in her shirt, her damp armpits. 
she takes the time to give all of these details of the train of Jess and Jason and their made-up relationship and Anna and the cream-colored blinds. So I know the author is going to tell me and I just want to keep reading faster and faster so I can find out because I feel bad for this character. I feel bad for her that she misses Tom so bad. Like, Tom, why won't you answer? What happened? I feel bad that she's so desperate and Kathy's boyfriend Damien is talking about her and that she has nothing to look forward to this summer and not even she doesn't even have any more alcohol to drink. So I feel really bad for this main character and I want to know her backstory. I want to know everything about her. She goes on to kind of imagine Jess and Jason it's almost like she's maybe projecting her former relationship with Tom onto them. You can't exactly say at this point in the novel. She kind of hints around um, with being sober, but that's kind of a worse thought than even drinking in this heat. I look at the screen. It's Tom. I hesitate for just a second, and then I answer it. Rachel. For the first five years I knew him, I was never Rachel, always Rach. Sometimes Shelly because he knew I hated it and it made him laugh to watch me twitch with irritation and then giggle because I couldn't help but join in when he was laughing. Rachel, it's me. His voice is leaden. He sounds worn out. Listen, you have to stop this, okay? I don't say anything. The train is slowing and we are almost opposite the house, my old house. I want to say to him, come outside, go and stand on the lawn, let me see you. Please, Rachel, you can't call me like this all the time. You've got to sort yourself out. There's a lump in my throat, as hard as a pebble, smooth and obstinate. I cannot swallow. I cannot speak. Rachel, are you there? I know things aren't good with you, and I'm sorry for you. I really am, but I can't help you, and these constant calls are really upsetting Anna, okay? Go to AA or something. Please, Rachel, go to an AA meeting after work today. I pull the filthy plaster off the end of my finger and look at the pale, wrinkled flesh beneath. Dried blood caked at the edge of my fingernail. I press the thumbnail on my right hand into the center of the cut and feel it open up, the pain sharp and hot. I catch my breath. Blood starts to ooze from the wound. The girls on the other side of the carriage are watching me, their faces blank. And that's the ending of the first chapter. Tom finally picks up. We get an interaction with him, and he tells Rachel that she needs to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, which is kind of alarming. Tom sounds kind of sick of Rachel. He's sick of her continuing to call him when he's clearly moved on with this Anna woman. But I think, you know, because we've really gotten into the head of Rachel, we really feel for her. And we know Anna's kind of the antagonist at this point. Also, interesting way to end the first chapter. Um, I don't think I read that part, but prior, the author was discussing this cut on the protagonist's finger and at the end of the first chapter you know she pulls off the band-aid and blood comes out so she's she's wounded she's wounded and that's a great metaphor for how she also feels mentally emotionally as well and i'm just very intrigued i'm intrigued as to you know who really are jason and jess what role do they play in this story? Will the protagonist ever meet them? Will the protagonist ever know about these random clothes on the side of the train? Um, will we get to meet Tom and Anna and kind of learn their backstory, what happened? Will Rachel be able to overcome her alcoholism or will she succumb to it? So there's tons of questions. There's questions about the character of Rachel. There's questions about the actual plot. 
There are some other minor characters mentioned. There's a lot of moving parts, but the author just opened very slowly. It was a slow burn, and we really want to feel the heat in the next couple chapters, so we're going to keep reading. That chapter is so successful because it reveals mystery, it reveals character, and it's excellently paced, very concise sentences, very descriptive, and we really get the feeling that we're on that train with Rachel. I hope this episode helped you become a better writer. Let me know if you've ever read The Girl on the Train. It's one of my favorite books. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend it. Check out some of my other podcast episodes. Follow me on Twitter. As always, keep reading, keep writing, and keep querying, and I'll talk to you guys on our next road trip.